0: You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So we're going to read in verse 1 all the way to the end of the chapter 11. Up to this point, Jesus has been introduced to us by the Apostle John in this gospel. John, an eyewitness to Jesus and all that he did and all that he said, an eyewitness to Jesus, one of the twelve apostles, a beloved friend of Jesus, and he's introducing us to Jesus as he introduces us to people that often don't understand or get Jesus, a way of inviting you and I to consider who Jesus is with all our questions, all our skepticism. Beginning in verse one, chapter eleven. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the light, in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking, they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his disciples, his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb four days She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. A stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me when he had said these things he cried out with a loud voice Lazarus come out the man who had died came out His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. My prayer is that God would do what only He could do here. Open our eyes. Stir up our understanding. And my hope is that I get out of the way of those things. So up to this point, Jesus has been introducing to Himself with statements about who He is. In fact, there are seven most prominent statements I am statements, as we would call it. In this chapter, we see the fifth prominent one. He introduces himself in chapter 6 as the bread of life. In chapter 8 and 9, as the light of the world. In chapter 10, as the door for the sheep. And then as the good shepherd. And here we see he introduces himself by saying, I am the resurrection and life. We also encounter the seventh and most amazing and final sign That John is introducing us to see Jesus. It's the last and greatest sign. But notice it isn't a trick. It's called a sign for a reason. John tells us that it's something that we see Jesus through. It's not a trick. It's a business card. Jesus introduces himself by performing miracles. These signs are a way of him saying, this is what I'm like. Don't forget it. And so I think we see at least two things in this chapter. We see the power of Jesus over death, His resurrection power, and then we see a very distinct turn towards His hour. Now up to this point, right, people have wanted to force His hand, they wanted to force Jesus to do what they wanted Him to do, and He says, the hour has not yet come. Remember the first person He corrected, as politely, I guess, as only Jesus can do, was His mother? At the top of the list of the people who didn't get Jesus was His family? His family? That ought to be something that is an encouragement for many of you who I know are probably even under at least a little bit of ridicule just for being here today. And so, he says over and over and over again, my hour is not yet come. My hour, that is the moment where he will be lifted up, that he tells us in John chapter 3, that all that would look to him, just like the people dying of a snake bite in the wilderness would experience life. And just to look to him, is to experience victory over the enemy. And so here he introduces himself as the resurrection and the life and performs the last and greatest sign to point to who he is. But remember, to receive the gifts of Jesus is to also receive the critique. He says, I'm I'm the bread, which is to imply what? You are hungry, starving people. I'm the light of the world, which is to say you are are in darkness, you're thirsty, you're a helpless wandering sheep, you are shut out from the flock of God. And now, to receive the gift is to receive the critique. You are going to die. You will die. In fact, you are spiritually dead apart from me. Now, here's the hard part of this text. We saw this as we walked through the book of Ecclesiastes together, Colossians, and even First and Second Thessalonians. The hardest part of this text is that most of you in this room do not believe that. Not really. Certainly not today. And so I think, hopefully, if I'm leading well, I'm pointing out one of the elephants in the room, and then we've really been blessed as a church. As a church, we have celebrated lots of weddings We've celebrated the birth of lots of babies, but as a church, we have not yet celebrated a funeral. And don't miss that. On one hand, that's a mark of God's blessing. I know for many of you, you walk into this room, and, and most people will say something like, man, this church is really young. And I would encourage you, that that's because the church in America has an unhealthily high median age at the moment. And it's aging quite fast. And so on one hand, we're deeply blessed that the median age in this room is a healthily low number. However, that means that we have a deep obstacle, don't we? If we're going to experience the kind of gift that Jesus is offering here, life in the face of death, then that means that we're going to have to push back what you assume to be true. You're not going to die anytime soon. I know you think that. Certainly someone else. And here's the truth, you're more worried about probably your anxiety or fear or whatever's weighing you down with your relationships, your family, your job, money. Whatever. You, that seems more pressing than death to you. And I would say that's the first place where we begin to confess that to receive this gift is to receive a critique that we don't readily embrace. The death-defying love of Jesus is a present and eternal reality for His friends. Death-defying in multiple different aspects. Power over death, but also the power, have you caught this? The face death. To where we know by the end of this chapter they're going to kill Him. They're going to see fit to have Him dead. To silence Him once and for all. But the concept of life after death is bookended. Did you catch that? With a, a word that's Recurring in this chapter, did you catch it? The love of Jesus. The love of Jesus for his friends. So I want you to see this last and greatest sign. It's not a trick. It's an introduction of himself. And to receive those kinds of gifts means to put at the very end of superlative language about the character of God, first person pronouns. That is that we are to see and use superlative language, the greatest possible language to describe the character and nature of God, but we are to connect that superlative language, that glorifying, exalting language of God's character with personal pronouns. In fact, to miss that is to miss the gift. We see this in Romans chapter 4, the faith of Abraham is on display. It says that no belief is what... May, there's no belief that... Uh, the un, excuse me. No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but instead he grew strong in his faith and gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but here's the first person pronouns, but for ours also. That is what God had done wasn't just for someone else. It had to be connected to first person pronouns. Otherwise, it's meaningless. It was for us as well. He goes on, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for Our justification. Don't miss that. To think that death is up there and out there and not an ever present reality right in front of you is to disconnect the gospel with your own self. And so that's where we have to start facing the facts that most of you don't really think this applies to you. You're not going to die, you're going to live forever. What we see is that death is an ever present reality. First 16 verses really set the stage for the entirety of the chapter. And as John tends to do, the rest of the chapter kind of explains and kind of fills out the results of those first 16 verses. So let's just begin to walk through it. Beginning in verse 1, we see the love of Jesus demonstrated. One of the first things I think we see is that the friends of Jesus send to Him for help because they know that He is their only hope. Verse 1, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. In fact, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped His feet with her hair. Now, that's interesting. We don't actually find out about that until the next chapter, but evidently it's such a, a riveting and powerful story about this woman, a prominent woman, who was right there with Jesus the entirety of the time. He gives us a preview. And so verse 3, So the sisters sent to Him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Verse 1 I think one of the first things we see here is that suffering and death are often a mystery to us. Did you notice that there's no explanation for the type of illness? There's no explanation how it happened, when it happened, the prognosis. And I would encourage you with this. Suffering and death are often a mystery to us. Now, a few chapters before, there was a man born blind, and we, we saw the two prominent ways to explain suffering in the world are blame and shame, right? Is this your fault, or, or is this 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 is someone else's fault. And this is prevalent even, even across the vast expanse of our political, our political chasms as they, as they exist right now are, the, are those explanations of what's wrong in the world, right? Either you're a victim or, or, or you brought this on yourself. True? And that's the way most of our political motivations are trying to explain one of those things. Right? Right? Either you, you, you did this and you need to fix this and all the good things in my life are because I did this and so therefore you do the same or no, 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 you, you and your people are by, by intersectional kinds of influences a victim of all sorts of things outside of your control. And therefore you will try one of those things. You'll either try to find a way to like cast the, the blame and make victims or you'll try to make people ashamed of things they've done. You know who you are. What does Jesus say? It's more complex than that. It's much deeper than that and so jesus takes on his own body both blame and shame he 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 takes not only our guilt but our shame our condemnation see the same thing here we don't have any explanation for why this happened what the illness is and that's because frankly lazarus died mysteriously we don't know the cause unfortunately we rarely do but look what happens in the, as a response in verse 3. The friends of Jesus send to him for help. Why? Because they know, in spite of this mystery, Jesus is their only hope. Here's what I'll say in this. Jesus, sent, Jesus was sent for by his friends, and we are to do the same. We cry to Jesus. We say with confidence, Jesus, if you don't come fix this, we're dead. But notice what they do. It says here, the women sinned for Jesus first. And that is what we're called to do as well. Christians are the ones who look to Jesus first, not as a last resort. Now this means you have to be very careful about even the words you use to describe common biblical practices. Have you ever heard someone come and say, well, all we can do now is pray. How do you feel about that? Maybe if I came up to you this week and I was like, listen, I was trying to find somebody who could help. Trying to find somebody who knew what they were doing, someone who was competent, intelligent, capable of helping me out. But you're the last person I could find. How would you feel? You get it? And so, look what they—they they, they send for Jesus first. I pray that 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 is like that's our culture as a group of people. The minute something breaks, the, our first thought is, Jesus, come quickly. Jesus, fix this. How, how, how can Jesus' glory be made manifest in this? How, boy, if Jesus doesn't come and work miraculously, I don't know what to do. This is so important for us. Some of you do not believe this. And even the fact, some of you are here, praise God, I love, I love Him for His grace in this, but some of you are here because you've tried everything else. And my hope is that even as like, Jesus renews you with hope, You realize, oh, shoot, I've been wasting so much time. And that's the first thing I think we're called to do. The first thing we do is repent of. We confess that. We have looked to other things for solutions, for help. And the women look to Jesus first. So that's maybe the first thing I would would encourage you to see Jesus for who he is. He's not a last resort. Now, by the grace of God, as your last resort, He'll still serve you. He'll still save you. He'll still redeem you. But the thing we're called to do is to repent of not seeing Jesus as our first and only hope. I say this to, say this to married couples as they're struggling through their difficulties in marriage and they're like, man, you know, boy, it's going to take a miracle to save us. You know the problem with that statement? It's not that it's not true. The problem with that statement is it's always been true. There's never been a moment where two sinful people committing to live faithfully with one another is not dependent upon a miraculous work of God's grace. And if you don't think so, ask your spouse. And there's never been a moment where that's not true. And we're called to confess the ways in which we've ignored that up to the point where we finally, I guess now, all we can do is pray. I want to encourage you, like the good news here that they model for us, Jesus is our only line of defense. He's our only hope. Now he'll show you grace by making him your last line of defense. But part of his grace is that you begin to realize you probably should have been leaning on him the whole time. And that for us is a call to repentance, a call to turn from trusting in other things. We looked at Jesus first not as a last result. The second thing they do is they... Look to Jesus and appeal to his love. And so do we. They look to Jesus and appeal to his love. And we then are called to look to Jesus in his love, not your merit. Look what he says. Lord, in verse 3, he whom you love is ill. Don't you love that? Maybe, maybe here's what it doesn't tell us, but here, here's what I mean, you think about. What if Lazarus is a complete scumbag? Like, I mean, Jesus was friends with a lot of, a lot of like, pretty corrupt people. That was his reputation. He hung around people so much that like, the type of people he hung out with started to stain, according to Matthew, his own reputation. People lumped him in with them. What if Jesus was hanging out with Lazarus, and Lazarus was his friend, and Lazarus was a complete scumbag? What if he was a jerk? Notice what they appealed to. Come to Lazarus. He doesn't deserve this sickness. Come to Lazarus. This is so unfair. Come to Lazarus, he's, I don't know, he's destroyed his own health, right? He's, he's, he's lived wildly and now his health is failing. They don't, they don't appeal to shame or blame. What They appeal to Jesus' love. And friend, that is exactly what we do. They didn't say the one who's a good guy is sick. They say, no, the one whom you love is sick. Don't you love that? They appeal to his love. Friend, that's what we are to do as well. In fact, to appeal to Jesus on any other basis is is being set up for failure. But Jesus, I, I attend church, I read the Bible, I pray like I'm supposed to. Can you hear the language of the Pharisee in that? I thank God that I'm not like them. I thank God that I'm not like those people. But what is the man Jesus tells us in in this story in Matthew, who walks away justified, the one who simply looks to God and says, beats his chest and says, Woe to me, a sinner. I deserve woe if it weren't for your love, your mercy. Look what they do they appeal to his love, and so do we. They see Jesus not as a last resort, but they also don't see Jesus as like some sort of expression of karma where you get what you deserve. In fact, Jesus is the one that you can come to and say, God, your love and your promise is for me. And apart from this, I am without hope. But look what's implied in this. We see, for the friends of Jesus, sickness is not the result of God's wrath. Look how it's worded there. Verse 3, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Don't, Don't miss the dots connected there. I know for some of you right now, if something is assailing your health and it's tempting in your own heart, you're like, man, I might be getting what I deserve or maybe this is awful. Don't miss this. Who's the one who's sick? Who's the one that's identified as sick? Is it the person who's disobedient? Is he identified as being, I don't know, is he like bringing it on himself? No, he's identified as sick and he's the one who's the object of Jesus' love. And for Christians, we know this. Any suffering we endure, any suffering we endure, every single bit of it is evidence of his grace, not of his wrath. Why? Because all the suffering that you deserve was taken by Jesus on the cross. Think of it this way. There's no punitive suffering for Christians. There's no punitive suffering. All the punishment that you and I deserve has been poured out on Jesus. Every single bit of it. And so as a result, I just want to encourage you, like, this sickness is not a result of God's anger or punishment or wrath. For those of us in Christ, the friends of Jesus, this sickness, it says, is afflicted upon a person whom Jesus loves. Don't let your health tell you otherwise. <laughs> Don't. Do not let your health tell you otherwise. We live in a broken, fallen world it's awful, and our hope is Jesus, and we pray that he would come back quickly. And for those of us in Christ, we know that whatever we endure is not because God is mad at us. Jesus already took the brunt. All that we have now is simply to enjoy his presence in the midst of suffering. So Christian, who, <laughs> Christian, you're under the attack, like your, your health is under attack. Can I just encourage you? God's not mad at you. God delights in you in Christ. We see in verse 4, the weight of the glory of God is greater than the weight of suffering and death. But when Jesus heard it in verse 4, it says, this illness does not lead to death. It is what? It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, this is a profound mystery, isn't it? He's saying, look, there's a greater glory, and that glory actually outweighs suffering and even death. This sickness is for the glory of God. And you'll ask, well, why does this sickness exist? And Jesus says, so that I will be glorified through it. I'll be glorified over it. Thus, the glory of Jesus is actually a greater gift, apparently, than the prevention of death. The greater glory and the greater joy wasn't to heal Lazarus. I mean, just think about that for just a moment. What he did to Lazarus causes Lazarus to have to die again. Right? If Paul's right, and to be absent from the flesh is to be present with the Lord, then, then there's a sense in which you would expect the first words out of Lazarus' mouth to be like, I was in the presence of the Almighty. What are you, like, what are you doing? And whatever killed him, whatever was painful enough for the, at least they saw coming, guess what? He's probably going to have to die of it again. And that's to illustrate something here, that evidently the weight of the glory of Jesus' resurrection power is greater even than suffering and death. So much so, I mean, this is, it seems cruel, right? He's going to let Lazarus die again. The weight of the glory of God is greater than the weight of suffering and death. In fact, it will be seen through death, in spite of death. And at least for these people, it will be seen in ways that's beyond our imagination. It's because Jesus loves his friends in a way that is often beyond their comprehension. Look at verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So even though they've been sent, Jesus loves them. And then there's this conundrum at the beginning of verse 6 did you catch that word so now if you have an NIV you're missing out because I think the NIV is frankly just too cowardly to to translate this I don't know why but literally the word there is therefore so to connect the logic that Jesus is communicating Jesus loved these people therefore when he heard that their brother was, was ill he didn't do anything He loved Mary and Martha. He even loved Lazarus. Lazarus. Therefore, what did he do? He hung out two more days. You see, Jesus loves them. And Now here's the good thing. We got to read the whole story so you already know how this ends. But if you're sitting in the middle of this, this seems utterly incomprehensible, doesn't it? And that's because Jesus tends to love his friends in ways that is often beyond their comprehension. They can't see it. He loves them but not like you would think. My encouragement to you is the same. Jesus loves you. Therefore, he is doing something that seems incomprehensible. He did not go to Lazarus. It's incomprehensible, isn't it? Let that sit on you. Don't don't even, like, don't try to soft sell that. That's incomprehensible, right? You you have problems. You're you're in trouble, and you're like, hey, I'm I'm in pain, and would you come and visit me? And I was like, I love you. So no. Right? Hey, I really need your help. I really need you to come and fix this. It's urgent. Yeah, I'll be there in two days. Did you get it? Let let the incomprehensibility of that logic startle you because it it sets the stage for something. Jesus didn't come the way they wanted. He let Lazarus die. And that's just the thing we have to accept. Jesus does not always come the way that we ask him. In fact, me may even refrain from healing us the way we wish. And the answer, according to the beginning of verse 6, as to why? Because He loves us. Does that blow your mind a little bit? The conversely is so that He might demonstrate and communicate His love for them. How? Well, if He didn't communicate His love for them by going to be with them, how is it that He's going to communicate His love for Him? I'm glad you asked. Because even though Jesus doesn't always come the way we ask, We understand and I think we see here that it's because he loves us. And don't miss the grounds of this. Jesus will even love us enough to let us see death. Does that seem inconceivable to you? Because if so, now we're on the right path. Now we're ready to understand what it is that Jesus is accomplishing here. Jesus loves us enough to see death. What what do you mean? How is that possible? Well, we'll soon see. Jesus loves, therefore he stays. He doesn't go and heal. And the harder that is to begin to understand, I hope, the more you realize that God's grace and kindness is above and beyond our comprehension. God's timing is beyond our comprehension. Like surely the message even got back to them that Jesus said, look, this doesn't end in death. And they were like, oh, cool. Our brother's not going to die. Well, one of two things had already happened at that point. Either he had already died Or, for the moment, they were like, oh, Jesus says he's not going to die. That's good. Jesus knows the future. It's going to be great. And then they watch their brother actually die. He He delays beyond where they can even imagine him keeping his promise. And often, I would encourage you, Jesus sometimes will delay beyond what you can even imagine in keeping his promise. And the way I would ask you is this is like when you when you think of God's love in Jesus what do you do? Do you see love and then try to fit Jesus into that box? Cuz Jesus loves in some pretty countercultural and crazy ways. And so think of it this way. Do you see Jesus love through your circumstances or do you see your circumstances through Jesus love? Do you interpret and experience and understand Jesus' love through the lens of your circumstances? Or do you understand your circumstances through the lens of Jesus' love? Notice what makes all the difference. If you see your circumstances as the lens through which you interpret everything your present happiness your present comfort your present loneliness or your your present crowdedness or your present sense of failure or success is that the lens through which you interpret jesus love or is it possible that you see all of those things as simply pieces pieces bits that glimmer in the light of jesus Because you'll notice the lens through which you understand these kinds of things is your actual God. And so if you find yourself I can't, saying, I, I can't imagine Jesus allowing this and still being loving. How can Jesus be loving and let this thing happen? And for you, whatever that thing is, that's the thing you really trust. That's the thing you really love. That's the thing you really worship. That's your God. God. Or, as we're invited to do here, do you look at those things through the lens of Jesus? Look, he went to the cross for me. He suffered death that he did not deserve. He lowered himself to the point of a servant, taking that servanthood even to the point of death, even death on a cross. I know for a fact, regardless of what happens, there's no way he'd abandon me. Is that how you see it? You look at the love of Jesus and say, certainly, this is awful, this hurts, this is terrible. And yet certainly I know he will keep his promise. As sure as that grave was empty, so certain am I that he will not leave me in this rotting place. Do you see your circumstances through Jesus or do you see Jesus through your circumstances? The disciples of Jesus know that to save his friend's life will cost him his own life. Look what their response is. Jesus is like, okay, let's, verse 7, let's go to Judea again. And the disciples hint at something here. They don't even realize what they're saying, but they realize that in order to save his friends, Jesus is probably going to have to die himself. Let's go to Judea again. Verse 8, the disciples have told him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you. You're going to go there again? And Jesus gives this cryptic explanation, right? Like, look, as long as it's daytime, we do work, son. Did you catch it? And as long as I'm with you, you work with me. And so that's what he says we're going to do. I'm the light. I'm with you. As long as I'm with you, it's working time. The hours are for this purpose. And then he says something cryptic. Man, I'm actually glad that Lazarus died, even though the first thing That he's confronted with is someone saying, look, if you had been here, you wouldn't have died. And then one of the most powerful I am statements in the Bible, look what he says. He found that Lazarus has died in verse 17. Verse 21, if you'd been here, if you'd been here, I I know that he wouldn't have died. And he says, your brother will rise again. What does he say in verse 24? I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Sure, I know this is all about eternal life later, but what does he say? Not, I shall be, or I might be, or even I will be. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. You see, the resurrection power of Jesus is a present and eternal reality. Now, I know that's important for many of you because even, even like the kind of a, generations of, of, of Christians have understood the gospel in light of their context and there's been helpful and unhelpful things that have kind of held over. But like one of the ways we would say is like Jesus will, will save you from hell when you die. And here's the problem. Most of you in this room don't even believe there is a hell. And then you don't really believe you're actually going to die. And so the first thing I say when Jesus can resurrect you is what's that got to do with me? And don't miss what you've done. You've fallen into the same mistaken reality that Martha perceived to be true. That what Jesus is going to do is somewhere up there and out there and off in the distance. And what does he say? The thing that I am going to do for you, the thing that I am for you, gives you life, not just eternally, but right now. We saw the last chapter, didn't we? Look, the thief comes to kill and steal and destroy, but what do I do? I come that they might have life. What kind of life? Just like survival, bios, remember? Surviving? No, zoe, eternal life, great life, life more abundant. This is the good life. And that's what Jesus says he offers. And so for those of you who are like, man, that's a distant reality. I don't even have to worry about that. I can wait till my deathbed to believe in this Jesus. Don't miss. If that's what you believe Jesus is, then you don't know Jesus at all. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in, is dwelling in and through and among His people right now. So is that true of you? Are you experiencing resurrection power now? Are you experiencing like life transformation now? Friend, your lack of joy in Christ's finished work now may be evidence that you won't enjoy it Ever. Don't miss that what we're called to confess here is that our temptation is to think just like Martha. Hey, yeah, yeah, that's good for for you. All you people are scared of death. I mean, yeah, you probably do need Jesus to get through the day, but I'm never going to die. Certainly not going to die today. And so I'm going to wait till tomorrow to trust in this Jesus. But don't miss that reality that you think, like that you perceive like Martha isn't true. I am the resurrection. I am the life. I am these things for you right now. And so we're confronted, I think. Those who are Jesus' friends and who fall asleep, we see the same language throughout the rest of the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 as well, will one day be wakened by Him who is the resurrection and the life. We're confronted with death and they try to explain it, don't they? And you see some of the pictures of false explanations of death, and I wanna point to them before we kinda get to where Jesus commands this man to walk out, come to life and walk out. There are probably at least two, but I think two main views of death. You will likely deny it or you will minimize it. These are the two most common, unbiblical, unchristian misconceptions about death. We either choose to deal with it by denying it or by minimizing it. You either completely ignore it, put it away from your mind, Or you kind of make friends with it and you're like, eh, it's okay. It's not a big deal. It's just part of life. You make light of it. But you know this, and any good psychologist will tell you this anything you deny will control you subconsciously. And the greater lengths you will go to deny it are the greater, show the greater power it will have over you. Now, we talk about this with when Jesus meets people, he goes after the thing after their back or behind their back, right? So, like if I came to you and I was like, hey, how are you doing? And I was like really the, really trying to make sure you didn't see what was in my hand behind my back. Even though it isn't between us, it has a strange overwhelming power, doesn't it? And the more, the more effort I put into keeping it hidden, the more it actually is like driving and controlling our interactions. And that's the same thing here with death. Because if you deny it, it just actually controls you. One of the ways, uh, I was reminded of this by a, a, a pastor who put it this way, one of the most One of the most common common emotions that maybe you don't get to see it, but I get to see it in, in getting to officiate funerals. One of the most common emotions that people express is embarrassment. Embarrassment. Have you ever heard this? They begin to weep, and what do they do? I'm sorry. They apologize. They apologize for mourning the loss of the person they loved. And do you know why they're embarrassed? Because they've probably spent most of their life denying it. Telling themselves it's not really gonna happen. And so they they feel foolish. I heard one pastor put it this way: it's like, it's like we're living in this prison in which we've all made a secret promise not to talk about the prison. We're all living in the prison, but we never don't mention the prison, don't, don't, don't act like it exists. It's everywhere around us, but just don't, don't admit it. And, and in a funeral, what happens? It's like, a, it's like a big gathering of people who are forced to stare at the front gate of the prison. And for those who have denied it or simply just put it off, what happens? They don't know how to deal with it. And that may be you. You're not going to die anytime soon. And one of the evidences of this is that the thing that you deny, if you deny an emotion, it drives you more. If you avoid an emotion, you become even more pathetic or driven by that emotion. If you ignore a hurt, it spurns you more deeply. One of the second, I think, misconceptions about death is to simply just naturalize it, minimize it. It's just part of life. It's no big deal, it's just something we have to go through. Well, let me be grotesque for a minute. Why don't we compost people? I mean, seriously, why do we put them in a casket and then by law put them in a vault? Why? If it's just natural, if it's just something we need to get through, why don't we compost them? Now, I know your favorite post-apocalyptic movie is flowing through your mind right now, and you're like, that's one of the ways you see it. Like, if you really think that's true, then why don't we do that? And you realize what Jesus realized here. Death is not natural, death is the enemy. It is not supposed to end this way. This broken world that we experience is not how God created it to be. And it's a denial of God's goodness to say otherwise. It's just a part of life. But that doesn't do it justice, does it? When the person you love dies, even unexpectedly, is that helpful? Hey, it's just natural. It's just a part of life. No, it's bigger. And look what Jesus' response is in verse 35. Verse 35 corrects that other misconception. Do you see what he did? He wept. He wept. He looked death in the face and saw its awful, harmful effects. And he weeps. It's not the elephant in the room to avoid. And it's certainly not our friend. Now this may set you free across your whole life. Because the elephant in the room for these people is the thing Jesus stares at right in the face. Such that we even taunt death. See it for what it is and taunt it, right? 1 Corinthians 15, we sang this just a moment ago. The mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, and we knew this because we walked through Hosea. Some of you, like, your memory will light up. Oh, death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin and the law. But what? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In Christ, we neither deny death nor minimize it, because in Christ, he looks death straight in the eye and then taunts it for what it is, an enemy that he will crush with his own foot, Present reality, I am the resurrection, gives us joy and hope even now. Do you feel it? I mean, think about it. What what if you could tell your enemy who taunts you with death, you don't scare me. An invading army who wants to kill you, you don't bother me. You look cancer in the eye and say, you can't really hurt me. This is something profound. Jesus doesn't minimize it and neither does he ignore it. He looks it right in the eye and is lord over it. Now this is important for us to think about, at least just even briefly. What we see on display here is both the compassion of Jesus and the authority of Jesus. I point that out because often I know many of you will err on one side or the other. And you really love the compassion of Jesus, his weeping, like, that, like that's a balm for your soul, correct? But you're terrified that Jesus would like, raise you to life and tell you to do something. Right? But the rest of you maybe lean on the other side and you love the like, authoritarian Jesus here. right? Like, You are not dead. No more dead. Not dead. Get up. right? Like You love that. And that's probably what you do even when your friends are hurting and, and you realize you should probably just go weep with them. Like Job's friends, even though they're clowns, they at least got one thing right in chapter 2. They just got in the sackcloth and ashes with them and said, hey, we don't even recognize you. We're just going to weep here with you. And don't miss, Jesus is not one or the other. Jesus is not a perfect mix of authority or compassion. Jesus is the perfect and fullest embodiment and expression of God's compassion and God's authority. Not one to the detriment of the other, he is both. You see both. We see Christ's perfect compassion towards his friends and we see his perfect authority over their enemies. He is just as sad with his friends as he is furious with their enemies. Such that we come along later as a result of the resurrected Christ, and we say, "Death, where's your sting?" Not that we belittle it. First, or excuse me, First Thessalonians four and five tell us, "We mourn, we weep, but not as those who have no hope. I want to end with this, there's some powerful kind of the you see it played out for the rest of the chapter, right? What he did? has consequences. So beginning in verse 45, you see what happens. Like, we're going to kill this guy. This is the last straw. But did you catch the little thing in the middle of it? Remember that mystery? How could Jesus allow this? How could Jesus be doing this? Did you, did you catch that? He was actually, did you, did you, he was speaking not of his own accord. So t- time out. Just zoom out for a minute. Let's, let's, let's nerd out for just a second. Jesus, according to John from chapter one, is one with the Father. He is united with the Father. Everything they do, they do together. Right? So when he says, or John tells us, hey, this guy prophesied what would happen to Jesus. This is crazy. Who told Caiaphas that Jesus would die for the people? In In a very meaningful way, Jesus told Caiaphas that he would be dying for the people. I want you to see that it, it, it like seems like circular logic and it'll blow your mind, but I hope it'll give you comfort because you're looking at the circumstances at the beginning like, what is Jesus to do? And Jesus is like, I, I, already, I actually already spoiled the plot. I already told them what I was going to No, they didn't believe me, but just, just wait. They'll recall later and go like, oh, now I recall. And so this giving of life to Lazarus actually leads to the cost of Jesus' own life. Pulling Jesus Out, excuse me, pulling Lazarus out of the grave was him taking a step towards it. Calling Lazarus out of his sleep, Jesus was making his own bed. Look at the command in verse 43. Lazarus, come out. Now don't miss this. I want to kind of land on some of these things. I want you to see a theological non-negotiable. Jesus revives so that we can obey not the other way around so notice he gives a command to a dead guy what is he assuming has to be true for that command to be obeyed what's the implied action right he in commanding is giving him life like what's the thing that's most implicit The thing that's assumed here. That a dead guy can even hear him. Now don't miss this. A dead body cannot obey a command. Jesus must give life. So many of you are trying to obey your way into Jesus' good graces. You're trying to obey God without actually looking to him for life. And you're terrified. He's going to ask me to change oh no, Jesus is going to ask me to change. He's not going to ask you to change. He's going to change you. He's not going to ask you. You're a dead body. He's not going to tell you to do something. Jesus isn't foolish here. He doesn't go around telling dead people what to do. He goes around making dead people alive. And our obedience, as paltry and weak as it may be, is simply an outflow, and an outworking of him bringing us new life. And so friend, if you're like, you're struggling to obey God. Don't miss it. Just maybe because you haven't really looked to Him for life. The crux of this passage, I think, is a few verses back. Did you hear what the? Did you hear what these, these guys told them? Did you hear what? Uh, it's 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 like a command. And I want to end on it. There's there's a couple things going on. Jesus weeps, perfectly compassionate with His people in verse 35. And so in verse 36, you see kind of a summary of this whole thing. And I want to point out three, te- three, three things first. He says, see how they loved him. That word see. Notice, that's an imperative for us. And I would say to you, friend, behold. Behold how Jesus loves his friends. Look. See. Do not miss the love of Jesus for his friends. Do not miss it. And so, the first thing we see is a command that we ought to obey. Look to Jesus. See how much he loves his friends. But then they make two mistakes. They make two mistakes. I want to walk you through them. They make two mistakes. The first one you see he says, see how. Now, what were they talking about? They were talking about the weeping of Jesus, the upset nature of jesus and they said look you can tell how much jesus loves this guy by how upset he is here's the thing they were wrong they thought they could see the love of jesus in his sadness and compassion for them they didn't realize that you can see the love of jesus when he calls his friends out of the grave they were wrong they thought oh you could see jesus love in the way that he cries no you can see jesus love when he crushes the enemy and draws his friends out from its grip That's the first thing that got wrong. Here's the second thing that got wrong. Did you catch it? See how he loved him. Loved him. I'm just going to let your mind be blown for just a moment. The love of Jesus is never past tense. Never past tense. They missed that his great love wasn't just shown in his crying, but they also missed that the love that Jesus had for Lazarus was not past tense. It's never past tense. He says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. And if you die, you will not actually die. And if you believe in me, you'll never taste death. And if you do die, I'll drag you right back out of the grave with me. Jesus' love is never past tense. It's not a moment you missed. It's not an event that failed. And they missed it because they thought Jesus' love for Lazarus was in his weeping, and it was past tense, not realizing that the love Jesus has for his friends is future, it's forever. Let's pray together and thank God for that. God, thank you for your love for us. We confess that as we read these words, your love is mysterious. It does not seem readily accessible to us because you love in ways that are different than the way we love. We tend to love with selfish motives, and you have only kindness and righteousness behind your love. So we confess that this is difficult for us to understand. For those in the room that have maybe maybe never even considered the possibility that Jesus has power over death, may these kinds of miraculous teachings be shaking and rattling. May they begin to expose the limits of our own imagination. May we begin to confess that we can't even comprehend what this kind of power and love looks like. And then when we confess it, would you renew in us and give us a new life, a new imagination, a new way of seeing things. For those of us in the room, maybe we've just set out to try to earn our way into your love. We have, instead of received the life-giving command of Jesus. We're just simply trying to obey our way into having life. Help us to repent of that. Help us to experience the kind of life that only comes from your powerful word for us in Jesus' name. Amen.